Well, it's just such a delight to be back with you. My wife leaned over to me and just said, this is what we love about being with our church, just worshiping with you on the Lord's Day and being encouraged by one another together. Some of you asked me if my wife and I had an opportunity to uh, have some time just to relax on this trip, because we did do some teaching and things like that, but we we did have some time to relax and... uh, we traveled a bit in the car into some of the places where my wife grew up in uh, going down with her grandmother there in Jackson, Wyoming. We spent some time there and, and all over Montana a little bit just to um, take in some of the scenery. At one point, we in Jackson, Wyoming, drove around the corner and there was a, about 20 feet from the car, a big bull moose eating on a tree. And so we opened the window and said hello to Bullwinkle <laughs> and took pictures and, and uh, that was a sweet time. We had an opportunity to float the Snake River, not, not the rapids, just a scenic float. <laughs> uh, and it was a delightful time um, there in some of the places where she grew up as a girl. And it was, it was a wonderful time of ministry, too. We <clears throat> spent time with people that we've known for a lot of years who don't yet know the Lord. We, we've had a wonderful time chatting with uh, friends and family about Christ and just trying to share our lives and ask God to answer our prayers that we would be, have those relationships grow for the sake of the gospel. Um, thank you for your prayers as a congregation. Many of you sent notes. I got texts from some of you and just the wonderful cards and, and just knowing that you were praying for our trip. Thanks also to the men that filled the pulpit here. I, I do watch online. If I'm somewhere and uh, I'm not going to be in some service or something, it's usually early in the morning because it's west of here, so I watch all of you. I see what you're doing during the service, <laughs> uh, whether you're bringing your Bibles and whether you're opening those Bibles. <laughs> um, we have a close-up setting. on No, just kidding. <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was wonderful to hear the Word of God preached and to have our hearts connected with ministry here. Uh, I did spend some time at Cornerstone Church in Jackson, Wyoming. It's a little church plant, and uh, they have a little theater downtown that they meet in at, on Sunday nights. Uh, Eric Davis is the pastor there. He's from a master seminary, and he planted the church a number of years ago with another guy. And uh, Eric uh, was actually not there this time. He was in Stanford at Stanford University recovering, recovering from uh, a rare heart valve problem. He had surgery there, but we were able to spend time with his leaders and his uh, sweet congregation there. What a delightful time that was. I met with uh, some pastors in Bozeman and Great Falls as well in Montana just to, these are men that I've known through the years, men that have a connection with our ministry here, love the seminary, love the church. And so had some encouraging times with them. And then uh, all of that was capped off by some time at uh, a Christian camp up in the, the mountains there south of Big Timber, Montana, and that's where we, we had a lot of time to teach. I, I taught morning and evening, and uh, I just worked through the gospel, every wonderful facet of the gospel with uh, the folks that were there, family camp sort of situation, so from teenagers and college kids all the way to the, the parents, all the little ones are off at the children's program, so... And you never know what you get in those camps. It's kind of a mix. There are people there that don't know Christ. There are others who, who you know, come for the very speakers that they want to choose. And so it's a lively time, and the Q&As were lively. What I noticed most um, strikingly, though, is that in the times of question and answer that were public and then privately the conversations that I had, people are really wrestling 
with, uh, with the issue of the goodness of God. When people wrestle with issues in their life, they, they sometimes come down to questions about the character and nature of God, particularly his goodness. In his 1981 bestseller, uh, Rabbi Kushner wrote this book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in that book, he, he wrestled with the same issue. Uh, is God really good? And in that book, he tries to come to grips with his own tragedy in a, in a family uh, situation, and he studied the book of Job to sort of work out his principles. And it came down for Rabbi Kushner to the dilemma of the character of God, especially as it relates to his power and his goodness. When calamity struck, Rabbi Kushner said of Job that Job was forced to choose between believing in a good God who's not totally powerful or a powerful God who's not totally good. Kushner says that Job chooses to believe in God's goodness. So in the final analysis, Kushner writes, quote, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes he can't even bring that about. It's too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims, end quote. And I've noticed that as I travel a bit and teach a bit, that question comes up quite a bit among those who know Christ and who profess uh, the Lord and are evangelicals by title. And I suppose if we're honest, we all at times find that those questions bubble up into our minds regularly. We face those kinds of questions and dilemmas and those ideas Before we have a moment to filter them, we can find ourselves asking the same questions. Is God powerful enough? Is he powerful enough to work all temporal, earthly things together for my absolute spiritual best? And if he's powerful enough, then the next question is, is he good enough? Is he of such good character that he's trustworthy enough to work everything for my absolute spiritual best? So it goes to whether or not he's good. And if he's powerful enough and he's trustworthy enough, then here's the third question that often bubbles into our minds. Is there enough love in him so that he's willing to do it? Does he love me so constantly and so unalterably that he is willing to oversee everything in my life so that it is for my absolute spiritual best? So, so there it is. Is he powerful enough? Is he good enough? Is he loving enough? Asking it another way, we might say it this way. Is the Lord over all other powers? Is he sovereign, in other words? Is he a good and righteous sovereign? Does he have integrity? And is he the kind of Lord that has such an undying love for his own that it cannot diminish? Not powerful enough or good enough or loving enough That's the question. Now, God doesn't keep us from every calamity. We know that. He's powerful enough, but he doesn't choose to. He's good enough, but he allows us to work through the issues of a fallen creation. He doesn't always keep us out of danger or tragedy or uncertainty. 
What he does do is that by his power and by his goodness and by his love, he tells us and promises us that through those troubles, he will carry us just like we were singing. He will carry us through the tempest. His faithfulness will lead us through the storm. He will carry us through the trouble, always promising to buoy us on the wings of his all-sufficient grace so that our trust in him can be unshakable. And so, beloved, here's the issue. The strength of our faith is directly proportionate to the depth of our convictions about those three things. The strength of our faith is directly proportionate to the depth of our convictions about God's power, God's goodness, and God's perfect love. Jerry Bridges, in his classic work, Trusting God, or which has been retitled, Can God Be Trusted?, He says this, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about, end quote. Well, that's the wonderful lesson we learn along with the disciples in the narrative that is before us in the eighth chapter of Luke's gospel. So take your Bible and let's return to our study of Luke Hopefully you remember we were in the book of Luke. (laughs) You remember? (laughs) Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Follow along as I read. A very familiar text. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. He got up. And rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Where exactly did we pause in our study of Jesus' ministry last time? Well, Jesus had taught the disciples some parables about true faith. We walked through that. He'd driven home the point about the good soil always receiving the word and bearing fruit. We talked about that. He had taught them that a genuine believer is known For more than merely hearing the truth, but a genuine believer does the truth. He heeds it. A genuine believer obeys it. Christians walk in the truth to bear fruit. You remember in verse 19, his mother and brothers came to him and they were unable to get him because of the crowd. 
and it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Verse 21, but he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Christianity is life transforming. Real faith is appropriating. You hear the truth, you strive in in dependent prayer and faith to obey the truth and the Spirit of God empowers you to bear fruit in the truth. It is not the dull of hearing that bear fruit. It is not the mere hearer who ends up deluding himself who is the one who bears fruit. It is those who appropriate it by faith and those who walk in it unto transformation by the Spirit's power. So now Luke in the narrative adds another extraordinary event in the in the disciples' school of faith. And this is absolutely remarkable. This event unfolds like every other learning experience that God orchestrates for his disciples. And I just sort of see a pattern in Luke's gospel and in the gospel narratives as to something very familiar to you and me. This is exactly how it goes. God will providentially orchestrate the circumstances of your life and he will bring some kind of challenge, dilemma, or, or trouble to unfold. There's the plot. Every day, every week, every month, every year of your and my life on our way to glory, there are plot lines that unfold. Some dilemma presents itself in the providential orchestration of God. His planning, his sovereignty sets before us some trouble that begins to unfold. And then the faith... Our faith as a disciple of Christ is put to the test. And as our faith is put to the test, the inevitable gaps in our belief system show up. As we're put to the test, the weaknesses of our thinking and convictions and faith and knowledge and dependence begin to be exposed. Eventually, We, by the Lord's love, are driven to the end of our own strength, and we run to Jesus as our only source of help, which is what we should have done in the first place, but we don't. You come back tonight, we left Jacob on pause for a long time in Genesis, but you come back tonight, you're going to see what God does in both revealing our weakness as well as blessing the process for our good. It's a tremendous illustration of this very lesson the disciples learn so many centuries later in the history of God's people since Jacob. Jesus is the only answer, and eventually we are learning to turn to him. And then in the disciples' lesson, their theology is refined and their faith is strengthened. In fact, you could pretty much take that template and place it over every day of our lives, and that's how the Lord is working to do the same thing in and through his people, in and through us, in and through you and me. God leads us toward the troubles of life. Our faith is tested. We think we're strong on our own, but our weaknesses inevitably show up. We're forced to turn to the Lord as the only answer. Our spiritual convictions are refined and deepened, and our faith grows. So let's dig into the particulars of this particular amazing day in the life of the disciples. And if you're keeping an outline, the narrative begins with Jesus 
providentially withdrawing from the crowd after an exhausting day of teaching and healing. So point one, we'll just say providentially withdrawn. Providentially withdrawn. Verse 22. Now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake and they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Now, as I said, Jesus had taught some parables from a boat. And then, um, after teaching some parables from a boat, he had gone home, according to Matthew's gospel, and in private, according to Matthew 13, 36, he taught the disciples the meaning behind the parables, so there was private teaching going on. And then another crowd had gathered. If you go back to Matthew chapter 8 in your study, you'll find that in verse 18, just before this event, another crowd had gathered, and so a full day, it's evening time, as Mark's gospel indicates, and Jesus needs some rest. And so to get some desperately needed downtime, Jesus, no doubt, probably said to Peter, get your boat, and he said, let us go over to the other side of the lake. It's dark. Mark 4.35 says it was evening, and they set sail. They headed out. The lake, by the way, Sea of Galilee, Lake of Gennesaret, is a pretty big body of water, 13 miles in length and uh, five miles wide or so, right in there. And um, if you want to go from the northwestern edge, which is where they were, Uh, across to the eastern side, you'd have about a four, four and a half mile trip, and that would be a perfect time frame for Jesus to get some rest away from the crowd. You can't get to him out there. Mark's gospel says there were some other boats that went with him, so clearly he had a chain of groupies and followers out on the water as well, but the disciples and Jesus in this boat gave an opportunity to sort of get sequestered here. And you note there in verse 23, uh, Beginning of the verse, as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep. And I, I just read that and think, of course, of course, he, he is absolutely spent. He's exhausted. He is one of us fully. He is fully human. You don't have to doubt that he doesn't understand the the way that life works in a fallen world, in a fallen temporal, uh, limited uh, continuum. He, He understands it. He gets it. He's fully human. He's fully one of us. And he's weary, absolutely exhausted from a day of serving and endless counseling and traveling and preaching and then meeting people and healing, praying for their needs Same thing you do when you go to work. You take care of your kids. You take care of your home. You go travel. You visit people. You minister to them. Some crisis comes up. You're on the phone. You got 40 emails to deal with. You got texts you haven't returned. You get to the end of your day and you barely got two meals out of the the three you like to enjoy. And there you hit the pillow. And, you know, uh, there, there have been days when exhausted, my wife's timed from when my head hits the pillow to when I'm gone. And when you're really exhausted, that's fast, isn't it? I think my record is nine seconds. (laughs) There's just something very 
precious about the Lord of glory being involved at this level. Again, we'll see that truth again tonight in such a rich way. This is, of course, God himself. This is the creator of heaven and earth who made the Sea of Galilee and he's mentally and emotionally and physically beat. He's spent. Verse 23 then takes us from them being providentially withdrawn to violently overtaken. Violently overtaken. Verse 23, as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. They began to be swamped and to be in danger. You've read this text many times. I've read it. You've imagined it many times. But just a, a simple reminder, and for those of you who may not understand the topography of that part of the world, in fact, to study the topography of that region around the Sea of Galilee is to make a study in, in violent weather patterns, particularly an area vulnerable to those dangerous weather scenarios. We understand a thing or two about sudden violent weather here in Florida. It can happen upon us as the, as the cold north air rushes down and hits the thermal stuff that comes off the warm water and off the warm land. We know what happens. You, you get what you've had over the last few days. Uh, these bursts of wind that can take branches of trees down and all these rainstorms and massive lightning. And you can suddenly have in that collision of warm and cold air winds that gust to 50 and 60 miles an hour. It's not even a tropical storm. It's not even a hurricane yet. It's just violent, quick. Well, the same kind of thing happens over the Sea of Galilee. You have the high mountains that jut up all around it. You have deep ravines and canyons that act like these channels through which the wind comes uh, explosively down into the the trough area, and you have warm water that, and warm air that's developed in that trough area from the hot sun, and when that cold air comes shooting through the canyons and collides with it, you have what is literally described here as hurricane force rushing winds down upon the lake. In fact, that would be Luke's language, a hurricane force wind rushed down upon the lake. Most of your translations say windstorm windstorm, but the NIV probably has it as close as you can get it. This is a squall. This is a violent uprush of winds that sends the surf all over the place in huge troughs and huge waves. That's probably closer to the idea because the violent hurricane force wind made the lake into this full-fledged storm surge. It had surging waves and surging wind, and it happened very suddenly. Matthew even uses terminology that indicates it shook like an earthquake. It was like an earthquake was shaking the basin. He even uses that language in the original. And notice what happened. They began to be swamped, or literally, they began to fill up entirely. So the picture is you have massive waves are smashing over the boat at such high levels that experienced seamen, experienced fishermen have no way of preventing it any longer. It's too fast, it's too big, it's too violent, and I might add it's too frightening. They are struck. So the picture is that this boat is going all over the place. Where is Jesus? <laughs> Well, Mark's gospel says he's in the stern of the boat on a cushion. 
He's sleeping on a cushion. Isn't that precious? He's sleeping on a cushion. So you have seaworthy and storm-savvy fishermen with decades of experience fighting for their lives in this huge violent crash over the nearly swamped vessel. And Jesus is himself crashed out on a pillow in the back of the boat. I just can't get the picture in my mind. How is he not jarred? How is he not soaked? I'm sure he is. He's jarred and soaked, but he is wiped out. How can this be? Well, just sort of wrap our minds around it a minute. Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Son of Man, the Son of God, though he is fully human like us, he is in this moment demonstrating what is the experience of someone who enjoys a deep faith and trust in his heavenly Father. Jesus served God in full faith. The spiritual battles of the day are over for him. His trust in the Father is at its full peak, as always. It's at full strength. Jesus never worried. Jesus never questioned God's providence in circumstances. He never demanded constant earthly comfort or circumstances that were safe. He never demanded it. His mind never went there. He might have been tempted to in the exhaustion of his life. He certainly was tempted in the wilderness to grab for things that would have meant earthly comfort and temporal blessing. But even in those moments, his faith rose to those occasions. He believed his God so that his worries were never about himself. They were always about whatever God was doing. His concerns were what the Father is unfolding. He simply lived in the course of everyday life entrusting himself to the divine plan. He was exhausted and he believed his God so he slept. (laughs) Sometimes our sleep is troubled, isn't it? And you know, sometimes our sleep is troubled because of physical things you just can't get over. I mean, sometimes you can't rest. You got all these things going on in your body or whatever. But sometimes... I wake up, and I'm very aware that it is worry and anxiety that is waking me up from a much-needed rest. And, you know, people talk, oh, you got to have this much rest, this much rest. Listen, I could, I, if I was really believing God, I'm sure I could accomplish in two hours of rest what I ultimately need. I may eventually need to pass out for a few more hours than that. But real faith settles you, settles your mind, settles your heart. Exhaustion has its full purpose in your life. Jesus is exhausted, but he's not worried. He's not desperate. He believes. Providentially withdrawn out in the ocean, violently overtaken by this surf. Number three, spiritually defeated. Spiritually defeated, verse 24, and they came to him and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're dying here. This isn't um, hyperbole. We are perishing. They knew what it meant to be in an ocean you can't control. They knew what it meant to be at the end of their skill. 
We are, in fact, at the end. We will certainly perish. Matthew's gospel says, or records, that they came to him and woke him and said, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. You know what that does? That raises the question of God's goodness. Are you a good God to save us from this devastation? Mark 4, verse 38, Mark's gospel says they woke him and said to him, Teacher, and then they said this, Do you not care that we're perishing? So there was this intent that Mark picks up from Peter's relaying of the account. And Mark writes it down that Jesus, that they said to Jesus, do you not care? That raises the question of God's love and his willingness. It's not that the disciples shouldn't be afraid of natural disasters. We understand that. Or even a threat to their physical safety. That's, that raises all kinds of adrenaline and fear issues in our physiological and mental state. It's quite natural to our humanity to be overcome with fear and adrenaline when some life-threatening circumstance is suddenly put upon us. But there is something far more threatening that occurs when a circumstance arises and our beliefs and convictions about God begin to give way to heresy. There is a far more threatening issue Look, God knows and can control the circumstances and he will not often take you out of a threat to your safety or a devastating circumstance or a natural disaster or even a moral evil. He won't often take you out of those things, promises to carry you through those things. But the greatest threat is not the physical safety issue. The greatest threat is not even the emotional pain issue, beloved. The greatest threat is when your view of God turns to heresy in those moments. The greatest threat to your well-being is to abandon truth about God. Whenever fears arise within us, it's because life may take a turn for the worst, but at that moment our faith is called to the front line. God intends to strengthen your faith, so he calls it to the front lines. And we're to ground our convictions not in whatever's going on around us. We're not even to ground it in our wishful thinking that we wouldn't face fear and physical uh, insecurity. Look, I don't want to face those things either, but that should not tempt me to heresy. It should not give way to wrong thoughts about God. Truth anchors the heart and the soul and the mind in the midst of chaos. And we must believe it despite what rages around us. And just like us, the disciples needed a refining lesson in their theology here. They have reached the end of their experience. Boy, that's so like us. That's what God wants. I want you to reach the end of your experience. And you should have just abandoned your own experience in the beginning and rushed right to Jesus. They have reached the end of their ingenuity, the end of their skill, the end of their spiritual depth. 
And so their fear of the natural dangers around them is giving way to questions about God's power. Do you not care? Can you not save us? Will you not be willing to love us this way, the way we want? You know the moment you see the disciples doing that, that if you're in that boat, that's exactly where we're going to be. You know why? Because this happens so fast, doesn't it? Heresy bubbles into our mind and heart and convictions so fast. The entire scene is familiar territory. Notice that even when they're questioning the care and love of God and they're completely out of options, they still have to go to the stern of the boat and get Jesus. That's, that's where you kind of resonate with them there. Yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah. Lord, help me. Well, aren't your other methods working? No, they're not, actually. I told you they wouldn't. I know, but I've got to try them. I'm so glad they went to the stern of the boat. Wake the guy up. We are desperate So they're providentially withdrawn, they're violently overtaken, they're spiritually defeated, and so they have to be divinely reoriented. Divinely reoriented. Verse 24, and being aroused. (laughs) In other words, the Gospels indicate by the terminology here that he was absolutely in the deepest rest you could be. This is deep rem. Yes, Jesus had rapid eye movement sleep, probably every day. Because uh, he didn't worry, and he was exhausted and used and spent. So they aroused him to complete awakening. So as they're waking him up, I mean, he's like us. He's startled. <laughs> and he hears them saying what they're saying. And so he's aroused out of his sleep, and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. And they stopped and it became calm. Read that over again in your mind. They stopped. What stopped? The wind and the surging waves. Science will tell you this is energy you just can't stop. You can't stop this kind of energy. When those things form over the water and they come toward the land, that is a kind of energy that's absolutely staggering when measured by our silly little scientific computations. It can't be stopped. If it could, we would. That kind of energy has to hit land and dissipate over time, and it does, and it's violent, and it's messy, and it's full of water and energy that you, you will be in danger, will threaten human life. Jesus rebuked the wind and surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm violent hurricane force winds 30 to 40 foot swells huge white capped waves all over the lake and the text says that he rebuked the wind and it stopped what did Jesus say to the weather well Mark's gospel indicates that Peter heard Jesus say something like hush be still or quiet Be completely calm. Mark 4.39 says, And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm, is the indication. 
Now, when you read that, you can't imagine it in your mind's eye. You try to get your mind around it. There, there they are all on the streets of Tiberias and running around in their chariots and people walking and doing business in the marketplace. And then they all batten down the hatches because the wind came down and the storm is raging and splashing up against the coast of Tiberias. And there they are huddled together waiting for the storm to pass and it's over in a second. The sea immediately goes calm and the winds immediately stop. What would, this is weird. Like the eye of a hurricane, this is strange. Violence all around, now all of a sudden it's a dead calm. The air is still. The text indicates that the sea became like, we would call it what? Like glass. Just mild water. Jeremiah 14, 22. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No. It is you, O Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. Ah, oh, the prophet knew. Job, verse 37 or chapter 37 rather, he unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. He says to the snow, fall on the earth and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. People are all up in arms. Oh, global warming. Look, God wants to warm the globe, he warms it. If he wants to freeze the globe, he freezes it. We don't go to science to worry about that stuff, and nor can you do anything to stop entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, that everything's breaking down, and there's nothing you can do to stop the fact that God cursed the earth and the universe, and it waits for its redemption because it's waiting for our redemption. Romans chapter 8. I'm not saying we shouldn't respect what God has given us, but he can do with it what he chooses. There's nothing we can do that adds a single moment to the universe's life. Psalm 147, he covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grow on the hills. He spreads the snow like wool, scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. We went through a hailstorm when we were in Wyoming. He hurls them down. This verse came to my mind. He's hurling down hail right now because he wants to I think it's fun for God <laughs> who can withstand his icy blast he sends his word and melts them he stirs up his breezes and the waters flow Amos 4 7 I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another one field had rain had it, and another had none and dried up God can bifurcate his weather patterns any way he chooses so it is nothing for Jesus to stand up in a boat because of his divine power granted him in his incarnation and as a man say to winds and waves be quiet and have them completely obey wouldn't it be nice if the disciples had obeyed like that what a rebuke to us nature obeys God and so there's a divine reorientation and then they are justly confronted, point number five. They are justly confronted. Verse 25, and he said to them, 
Where is your faith? Oh, it doesn't mean they never had any faith. His point is, where's the faith you had? Where's the faith I've built up? Where's the faith you ought to be accessing and tapping, calling for and pleading for? Where's that faith? I saved you by granting you faith. I'm growing your faith. Where's the faith I should expect to see? That's the issue. God does not test you beyond what your faith can, can rise to. He expects to strengthen you. What he's saying to the disciples is, you could have, you should have, and you must rise to it. None of this self-pity stuff. Where's your faith? Matthew says that when they went to the back of the boat and woke him up and said, we're perishing, he said to them, why are you afraid? He's not saying, why are, why are you afraid of waves? He knows why the human mind and heart rush adrenaline to the brain or secrete adrenaline in the, in the face of such things. He knows that. He's saying, why are you afraid for your ultimate care? Why are you fearing that I don't, I'm not watching that I don't know what's going on, that I don't know what's around the corner, that I don't know how you're going to get out of this or get through it or I'm going to do what I'm going to do and you're going to be secure. Why are you afraid of that? That's what he's saying. And he said, men of little faith. That's what he said before he hushed the storm, Matthew says. And after he hushed the storm to stillness, Mark says that he also asked him, how is it that you have no faith in this moment? That's a fair rebuke. They'd seen miracle after miracle. Their theology of God's power should be intact. Their theology of his goodness and his love should already have produced a deeper conviction. It's a fair rebuke. It's a just confrontation. And perhaps they're like us. Perhaps they've enjoyed the blessings of God's previous care and his previous love without entrusting themselves to it. They just enjoyed it. Like an unbeliever enjoys the common blessings of God, sometimes we as believers just take in all the special care of God and, and we don't appropriate it into greater entrustment. We take all the care and love that God gives as though it's some kind of entitlement for the comfort and fears of our life here and now. Oh, of course you comfort me here now, Lord, because I deserve comfort here now. Of course you take me out of bad situations now because I deserve not to have to fear those things. That's not the case. When God takes you through a situation like this and he says, where is your faith? He is calling upon you and me to entrust ourselves to what he has done and does as proof that we are never out of his purposes or his care or his eternal work. Do you know why we wonder about that? Because we care more about this life than our souls. We care more about physical safety than we do about heresy. His care and love is the proof of his faithful character. What care and love? 
At the cross, Jesus Christ redeemed his people. If he freely gave you Christ when you were an enemy, how will he not then freely give you all things? When you don't experience comfort and safety that you crave, stop craving it. Well, they providentially withdrew. They were violently overtaken, spiritually defeated, divinely reoriented, justly confronted, and finally, theologically edified. They were theologically edified. Verse 25, they were fearful and amazed saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water that they obey him? You say, what is that all about? They already knew who he was, but they're being theologically deepened. If he can say that to the weather, then you know he knows what's coming to them. He knows that they need faith and strength for the days ahead. The persecution threats on their life. He knows they need to believe him and trust that he's going to send the Spirit. He knows they're going to be the first ones to preach the gospel. He knows every single one of them, with the exception perhaps of John, are going to suffer the end of their life in martyrdom. He knows that. How many times do you think this would have come to their minds? I read this last week, the martyrdom of John Rogers, and as they walked him to the stake to burn him alive, He had such resolve and they put the recantation note in front of him, signed and he said, away with it if you love my soul. Away with that. Bring me the flames and he kissed the sticks. How could he do that? Because he's saying to those men, oh, you can burn this old body but you can't stop wind and wave. The universe doesn't obey you. You would have no power over me if it weren't given you by God. As Pilate was told by Jesus. One author put it this way. Always, faith is initiated by an act of will on our part. We set ourselves to believe in the overruling goodness, providence, and sovereignty of God and we refuse to turn aside no matter what may come Listen to this, no matter how we may feel, end quote. Psalm 42, 11, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so deserved, disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him in my Savior and my God. David said in Psalm 56, despite his being afraid of the king of Gath, he said, I will trust in you, I won't be afraid. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trust in God, said that the statement, I will trust in you, or I will fear no evil, is the same as saying, I will trust God in the face of evil. Same, same statement. Psalm 16, 8, I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, quotes Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1. I will never forsake you, I will not leave you. When John Newton's wife was struggling with cancer and then died, 
He writes this, I believe it was about two or three months before my wife's death when I was walking up and down the room offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress that a thought suddenly struck me with unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. It occurred to me, he says, that we're often led from an undue regard of our feelings to indulge that unprofitable grief which both our duty and our peace require us to resist with the utmost power. I insistently said aloud, Lord, I'm helpless indeed in myself, but I hope I am willing without reserve that you should help me. End quote. Psalm 56, 4, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. There's no conflict between saying I won't be afraid and yet, Lord, you are my help and my strength. There's no conflict. So, beloved, our answer to Rabbi Kushner is you don't have to choose between God's goodness and his power or his love. He is all those things. You must be willing to believe regardless of whether your circumstances change. So they were theologically edified, and so are we. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for helping our unbelief today. Thank you for giving us your kindness and grace and the gentle nudge of your love with this text. Thank you that you, though the disciples were justly confronted by you, you still gave them a display of your power that is so frightening to limited, finite human beings. Help us to never give way to heresy about your character in our minds and hearts. Help us to have restful sleep that isn't disturbed by sin and worry. And when we are up and around and exhausted from lack of sleep, may it only be because we are drawn to communion with you. Lord, in the days and weeks and months ahead for our ministry, even years as we see the younger generation come up, give us this kind of faith. We pray in Christ's name, amen.